Welcome back to another episode of The Hillary Show. I'm so happy that you're here and you're going to get to hear from Katie O'Dell today. She's a pastor. She's a social worker. She's a believer in reuniting families through the foster care system. She's a change maker here in Arizona who's helped get legislation passed that help keep families together, no matter kind of what the blend may be. What I am personally so drawn to about female pastors is my upbringing was women in church, maybe could play piano, maybe could lead the music portion, but they weren't praying. They weren't really leading. They were, they were always in a supporting cast uh, role. They were helping run the nursery. They were helping in Sunday school. And what I've loved so much, if you haven't caught the episode with Pastor Judith Christ, she and Katie work together here in Phoenix. And it's so empowering to talk to women who are entering spaces and being leaders and still carrying this really incredible feminine energy where it's like, I'm here. There are people who think that I don't belong here, but I'm not going to worry about them. I belong in this space. I feel called. I feel drawn to be in this space. And so I'm going to share the gifts that I believe that God has given me. And that is what is the essence of this podcast with Katie O'Dell. I can't wait for you to listen and I hope you enjoy. Katie O'Dell has been working in community and global development for the last 20 years. She's the city care pastor at City of Grace here in Arizona and is the founder of Arizona 127. She has a master's degree in counseling and specializes in trauma and vulnerable populations. She and her husband, Casey, have two kids and are rare Arizona natives. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm it's excited. So ex- to talk about yes. I'm so excited too. So what I want to talk about today is kind of who you are on paper and the different roles that you play when we start looking at each other. Um, when we, when we think about leadership, we often think about it being the things that we would write on a resume. But for me, I really believe that leadership is something that's within us and it often comes from kind of our purpose or our why. And so who we are at our core. And so we'll kind of talk about that second. How's that sound? Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. So you don't meet a lot of women pastors. In my experience, I grew up in the Baptist church. Um, I'm not sure that women were even like allowed to pray. I definitely don't remember any women praying, definitely not any women pastors. How did you find yourself as a pastor at one of the most impactful churches in the state of Arizona? Yeah, that's a really good question. It it wasn't something I set out to do. Um, And I work in in and around a sphere and even with people all the time that, that do come from a lens, maybe that, that women, that that isn't a role that women uh, should play and, uh, or hold in a faith community. And so I have spent 20 years navigating, uh, kind of leading in a space where uh, not all are really comfortable with who I am or the titles that I carry. Um, so we could unpack that for hours if that's what you want to, you know, kind of talk about that, how that yeah. has shaped my leadership or even how that has been, you know, kind of hurdles for me, especially because I started in kind of community and global development um, in the church world uh, as a young leader. So most of the time I was, or originally beginning it, I was a young female leader in a very 
seniored, seasoned, male-dominated space. And so navigating the challenges of that and the hurdles of that and just continuing to kind of lean forward into what is my, my kind of calling or what is the, the unique gift that I bring to that space. When you think about leaning forward, you've had to push through some barriers, it sounds like. What do you think was the hardest internally? Because the, the barriers are still there. There are still women all over the U.S. and across the world who probably are called to be a pastor and yet aren't um, for a variety of reasons, namely barriers. You pushed through barriers. What was the hardest one you think you pushed through? I think the hardest um, barriers even still are, are kind of what is the wrestle within, mm. right? And so just knowing within how do I hold the tension of that space. And so for me, I had to come to some, um, and there, and I wouldn't say that I, I have to remind myself to stay in these spaces, even of just knowing, like, I am not, I don't need another person's approval that I am in this space. And that's not my battle. Right. And so knowing what was the, the gift that I had to bring or the uh, intelligence or the elements that I bring to a space is where I try to really stay internally and, and then to not try to the battle that's not mine to battle. So using my title is actually something I do very rarely because sometimes it's more of a hurdle for someone um, if my title's used than for my title not to be used. And, but even as, you know, I also am an executive director of this nonprofit and, and sometimes in that space, even as a female executive director, um, that, that can be tricky as well, you know? And so leadership, I think the lesson that I learned in both of those has, has helped me grow and just settle into what is the heart space that I have to be in to keep my heart um, in a good place so that I can do the good work that I'm supposed to do, if that makes any, any sense. And so I have learned to hold my title really loosely um, and to also know those aren't the fights that I'm, most of the time that isn't the battle that I'm in, right? When I'm talking vulnerable communities or helping people who need help, it's a sidetrack fight, if you will. I can relate in the sense of people get hung up sometimes on me being an immigration lawyer and they will ask, especially when I go to, you can almost feel the uh, party line in the question. Yeah. And the question is like, well, do you represent the government or people who are here illegally? And then we have to have, it's like, okay, well, where do I go with this? Because I don't represent the government and it is still a great love of country that I will sue my country and, and make sure that it's following the rules that it says that it's supposed to follow in representing people who are not supposed to be here or who were allowed to be here and then overstayed. But yeah, I know what you mean where it's like, I don't need you to care about me as an immigration lawyer or for you to be on board with what I'm doing, but we can all get wrapped around the idea that we want our country 
to be a, a good place. We want rule of law. And I think for you, it sounds like we can all agree on what the object of the game is, how we're going to get there. It doesn't matter what title I wear. So I can relate. Yeah. And I think so much about leadership, you know, even, even thinking about what you were talking about, the, the political questions that get drawn. A lot of the community development work that I do sparks those same things, you know, in my world. Um, and I, I, what the posture or the, the leadership role that I try to pay, play in any space is the shaping of the heart. And I think for so many reasons, we have to lean into those hard conversations with people, not in a way that ignites it, because that's not going to go anywhere, right? But in whatever way that we can shape a little learning and shape a little um, new perspective on a heart or give empathy uh, to a story or um, to make it more personal to a story of a single individual, that's where I think we can we can fill in some gaps um, and help people step into a new understanding, you know, and, and really in our leadership, then find less stress. And cause the fight gets exhausting, right? If you're always in fight mode as a leader um, it really can exhaust you and take you out of leadership, honestly. And so learning how to lean in into a place that's healthy and help shape hearts. That's, that's kind of my goal to shape hearts. Have you ever found yourself where you either got out of alignment because it is frustrating. You can be, uh, I can only imagine. Um, I, there are many, I think that my field actually is dominated by women lawyers. So all of my close or many of my close friends are female immigration lawyers. You can't say the same because, well, perhaps you can, if you have very few friends, because there just aren't a whole lot of female pastors out there. I'm lucky in that my aunt is um, a pastor at Pepperdine University. Okay. She's the chaplain there. And so I have kind of, you know, from observing her and um, kind of watching her journey, recognize that it's a really special thing to be a female pastor, even in 2022. Um, when have you felt like and this is totally putting you on the spot, but when have you felt like you got out of alignment with that? And what was a consequence where you got to course correct? And now, you know, you will never, that's not the hill you're going to die on. And perhaps it's touching the hot oven. I don't know if you have kind of a story to share because every woman in any capacity will be able to learn from what you'll share. You're meaning out of alignment with where I let it kind of take a negative route in my heart and yes. in my, in my person. Yeah. I, again, I think it is a really personal kind of introspective look that, that someone has to take. Um, because I think when that makes me think when I start to have thoughts or, um, wonderings, like this just isn't. I don't, I don't want to do this fight anymore. I, I like, I allow that whether it's real or perceived, right. Cause sometimes we, we assume that that's what the objection is in the room, um, from past experiences, but where we just kind of lean into realizing what is the reason I do this? What is the core of the, like, what wakes me up in the morning and what did I start with? And then how, how do we practice um, techniques to really kind of 
shed ourselves of, of the misbeliefs and the misunderstandings or someone else's idea of the right person um, in roles? And where do we just kind of lay those things down? And then how do we, how do we begin to just realize where the wounds in our heart are, right? Or the wounds in our soul that can take us to burnout, that can take us to anger, that can take us to just ineffectiveness in our leadership or in our work. And then how do we, how do we pull those things out and how do we then guard ourselves in, in better? I think, you know, you said that you work with a lot of female uh, lawyers. For me, I try to, I try to circle myself uh, with other female leaders and, and that in that um, community, in that friendship that we find strength and we encourage each other, you know, and sometimes we, we share our wounds and then help bring encouragement and healing to those. So I, I think community is a big, a big piece of the answer. I think we tend to isolate uh, as humans, but I think community is where we find strength and healing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there is a, perhaps it's something you've seen or something that you've experienced where you can say, I know that this didn't work and now this is how I behave or how I heal or how I interact or how I show up because I made this mistake. Mm. <laughs> I think I'm still learning that. So let me know when you figure it out. Cause yeah. me too. Yeah. I, you know, I am a, a bold personality and I am a, I have a really hard time not sharing my thoughts and opinions. And so if you invite me into a space to contribute as much as I might pre the meeting say, okay, I'm going to say very little. I just need someone to know it never plays out for me. I, I do not know how to, if you're going to ask me to think on something and to contribute to something, I take that invitation very seriously. So I've, I've attempted to, to think through my words and to be really wise. I am a people watcher. So I do know how to read people really well. It doesn't always pause me from saying something, but I attempt to word it very carefully, you know, or to approach it very carefully. And then I do believe in, um, reconciliation. So, you know, if, if I have, um, potentially offended someone or overstepped, you know, then working to kind of talk that out with them. What after. do those steps look like for you? The reconciliation part, what would that look like? Yeah. I, I think reconciliation really is about one, allowing yourself the time to process what hurt you or what, what offended you or what set you off or what caused you to react. Right. So I think there's a, a element of self-reflection first. And then I think we get to a place of um, wanting to learn and grow ourselves. And so then we have to, with a humble spirit, go back into a conversation. And most of the time for me, if, if I'm noticing this, I have to be the one to extend the olive branch, right? Or to ask for the meeting. Um, and then to go into that space and just be willing to listen and learn uh, first, and then to express, you know, my hurt or my disappointment or 
the element that really just pricked me the wrong way, mm-hmm. but I, I can't go in just ready to only, only say my side. Right. But really going in with, again, it's that posture of the heart mm-hmm. kind of going in with a different, a different posture to say that didn't feel right. Right. And I've been reflecting on that. And even if I don't know why it doesn't feel right, just to come back and say that didn't feel right. Something doesn't feel, um, we were amiss, you know, can you tell me what that was like for you? And sometimes that person can say, oh, I didn't notice anything. Right. But normally when you ask them a question, someone eventually will turn the question back to you. And then that's where it allows you the opportunity to humbly, you know, kind of share what, whatever that experience was like for you. And, and I, and when reconciliation is done well, I think it really builds bridges for change and bridges for um, change of impressions, change of who can be in the room or at the table or in the country, or, you know, it really does allow um, people to have a different experience of and with people and to realize just the value of all people. I do something called the redo. So a lot of times I find myself acting in a way that I I don't want. That's not who I am. And yet here I am acting that way. So I want to redo. I do it a lot with my kids and sometimes I do it with my spouse, but I love what you're saying, which is I don't, the, the hardest part of the redo for me, because we'll go back. Like I have a very specific memory in mind where I was Ikea with all four kids all of them are, you know, eight years old and under, and we're loading up all this stuff because we're going to, we're remodeling the firm. I mean, it is like a, an adventure of a day and we get everything checked out. And my husband is going out to get the car so we can load all this stuff up. And I had the kids lined up with their ice cream cones. This was pre pandemic. So they had the, the soft serve ice cream cones. And one of the kids keeps running up to the doors, the double, the, the double opening automatic opening doors yep. to trip it so she can open it and then run back. She's probably six at this time and she's doing it. I'm on my phone. Cause I just needed to veg out for a few minutes. This is my ice cream cone. And she, I look up as she's turning around and basically runs right into somebody as they're leaving with her ice cream cone and they do this stomach suck in dip thing so that she just misses them. But I snapped and I was like, because we have a rule in our family. You're not allowed to walk while you eat. This is keeps them at least planted where they're going to make their mess. So I took the ice cream cone and I, you know, yank it out of her hand and Michael Jordan dunk it in the trash can. This kid, these big crocodile tears. And I'm like, you sit down while you eat, you know? And I'm not saying it nicely. Like I'm saying it right now. It was awful. I got in the car and she's crying. Other kids are like quietly eating their ice cream. Like, gosh, I hope I'm not next. I took her back to Ikea and did a redo. And we sat there and she ate her ice cream cone. And I apologize. I got to remake that memory. But the scariest part of a redo with kids, it's pretty easy because they're so generous with forgiveness is adults are not as generous. They've been burned before, especially if you're like me and I have to do redos a lot with my husband. Cause I will say things that I regret learning that self-control still, <laughs> um, and reaching out when you were saying, I, maybe I need to be the one to call this meeting. 
the conversations in my head about if I call this meeting and what's going to happen and what if they're going to say this, and we start having this whole, it's like a telenovela in my mind about how this is going to go. And it usually doesn't end well for me. And it is so scary to reach out. I think that's the hardest part of reconciliation. But what I love that you said was you can just say that didn't feel right. We don't have to sit and assign blame. I find myself where I want to really take responsibility. And sometimes I feel like the other person was, you know, they don't have clean hands, but when we can just say that didn't feel right, I want to have a conversation about it. Are you open to that? And then we don't have to navigate. You were right. I was wrong on this. I was right on this though. And you were wrong on that. We don't have to start doing tick marks and tally marks. I really love that one sentence. This didn't feel right. Yeah. It's interesting. You, one of the other things I do is work in foster care, but we use a technique that we teach parents who are fostering called the redo, um, as well. And the, the beauty I think of the redo versus reconciliation, or even what you're talking about is when we do reconciliation with relationship that we already have, it, it does allow for a, there's a basis, right? There's a foundation of trust. Um, even if in adults, it's harder, but reconciliation with someone that you have no foundation of relationship, it, it, it does require, like you're talking about a real humbleness to kind of lean in and just say, I'm so sorry that that is, uh, was our first interchange, right? That was our first experience of each other. Um, How can we help heal this? You know, how can we lean into um, working together well, or being in the same circle as well. And, and I think also giving people second chances. I think that's a, a need in our uh, society. I think we love the romantic idea of second chances, but in our humanness, we hate to give it, you know, we want to be the recipient of it. But we, sure. it's really hard to give it, you know? And so I think that's part of, of kind of just, again, this posture of your heart, you have to go into those reconciliation conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I want to segue into second chances because I got the, the wonderful opportunity to have a second chance with my parents. Um, and, and really I feel like I'm even having a third chance, um, of just having an, an even deeper relationship with them. But I know that you work in foster care and this is a big piece of who you are, but before we get into that, I want to hear from you kind of what you feel called to do, who you are. Like we talk about, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I don't really need to tell people I'm a pastor. It sounds like on some level, you're a healer and you're a community builder and you're a connector and a teacher, your mom, your wife, a daughter at your core. What do you think you are or who do you know you are? Um, I feel like that's a big question, like a deep thought, long answer. Um, I think I can more answer who do I want to be, you know, kind of in a, in a a daily, a daily existence of who do I want to be? Um, I think I want to be known as someone who, um, 
helps the marginalized. I feel like I want to be someone who's known to be someone who, who gives not just second chances, but 77 chances. You know, I want to be someone who fills gaps and builds bridges and helps people know that they are valued and that they are loved and that they are seen. I want people to know that, um, that God is a loving God. I want them to know that, um, just that there, there is this world of, of grace and love, and it is incorrectly colored by humans. Um, and even myself, you know, and that we fail at it daily, but that it really is, we are just drawn into this place, you know, of, of really giving that to people and expressing that to people and, and letting people know that on their worst, their worst day and their, their hardest day that, um, there is, there are people who can step into that and bring, uh, love and hope and hopefully healing and, um, you know, a, a picture of like a cup of water on your thirsty day, mm-hmm. just that, that we would be that kind of people. And so that, that's kind of my goal, you know, daily is to help bridge the gap of loneliness and depression and sadness and marginalized and vulnerable communities. Um, and to just try to, to help bring the different echelons of society, uh, into a better, a better relationship. So I would say that I, I accidentally came into that, you know, I don't know. I didn't set out to be that. I think that's just how I was wired and created to be. I think that, you know, when you look back, when you have the opportunity to kind of look back at your story, you can see all these different elements of a tapestry being woven together, right. To help kind of lead you to the next day. But even if you ask me, what do I want to do in the next 20 years? I'm not someone who could tell you, like, I was saying this to my husband recently, like, what would I, what am I going to do when I grow up? And, and he's like, I, I don't know, but you can't go back to school. And I'm like, oh, I, I might go back to school. You, you don't get to say that, you know, but I, when I look back over all the opportunities that I have been given, um, I am blessed to say that I, you know, I've been given them and they feel very, they don't feel like something I chased after. They feel like something that as I was going about trying to, to do these things, that those opportunities kept coming, you know, kind of before me. And then I gave my, my best at it. But I I feel like I have always been I'm going to use this word again, blessed to really operate in a space that I am wired to operate in. You know, a lot of people are kind of operating in a space that they might be good at, but it's not where their heart is. And I feel like I am uniquely um, in a space where I get to use all those, you know, elements of myself. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it definitely does. When you look back at life, when you're talking about the tapestry and you can, I think that, yeah, for me, I look back on my life and you start to think all of these things that I thought were really awful at the time are really serving me well. And for me, those are the the most serving are 
for me, rock bottom. And when I was in foster care, I had to go to a family reunification hearing and didn't know what I was doing there, but I was at a courthouse and I knew I was going to see my parents for the first time since I was taken away from them. I was 15, 14 or 15. And we went into the courtroom and I was escorted in there, walked in there with this guy in a suit and in rural Kansas, we don't see a whole lot of folks in suits because we're out there getting the work done. We're not wearing suits. Um, come to find out this gentleman was my state appointed attorney. And he told the judge that I was ready to be reunified with my parents without ever talking to me. Fast forward, I don't know, 15 years and I'm an immigration lawyer and I get to speak on behalf of my clients all the time. They have no idea what's going on because it's all in English and they don't speak English. And so it's amazing the full circle that we can, I mean, and I talk to my clients before I speak on their behalf. Unlike that attorney, I, I definitely do not repeat that mistake. Um, but even that experience shaped you to make sure that you talk to your, to your yeah. client. Yeah, because people often ask me, I'm a white lady, I don't speak Spanish. And I spend most of my day in a his, serving Hispanics who only speak Spanish. And they ask, why immigration law? Like there's all these different areas of law, why immigration law? And for a really long time, I was just like, I don't really know. And you start to come up with these like pretty answers because you get asked enough time. And then now it's like, well, do you want the whole answer or do you want the, like the cereal box version? But it really is. That was a shaping moment for me. That was the tapestry that was being woven together behind me. I didn't even know about when you look at where you are in a heart for when you say I've been so blessed yet I find myself wanting to serve vulnerable populations, people who, what a lot of us would look at and say, folks who have not necessarily been blessed on a societal uh, measuring stick, how, how has life prepared you to be uniquely qualified to do that? Yeah. Um, the word qualified scares me to um, how has life it. uniquely prepared you? <laughs> prepared yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, again, for me, I feel like there's lots of strings and so I'll try to cover those quickly. Um, you know, we, I work pretty specifically in foster care, um, these days, majority of my time in this, in this nonprofit that we created, and it works specifically with, with children and families connected to the child welfare system in, in the state of Arizona. So kids who find themselves in foster care and the families that find themselves connected to the Arizona foster care system. And there, there are lots of reasons where my heart got, um, shaped for that. Yeah. Shaped, but also burdened, like burdened in a way that I, I can't shake it. Like I, for the last 10 years have had to be, um, involved, not because someone told me to be, but because, you know, it just drives me. So, um, some of them were personal and some of them were, professional reasons, but the personal reasons were, we were, my husband and I eons ago, we were trying to get pregnant and we found ourselves 
uh, just struggling with infertility and not being able to get um, pregnant easily. And so we, we went through, I had multiple miscarriages. I had multiple, um, just challenging years of trying to get pregnant, but then having a miscarriage, trying to get pregnant, having a miscarriage, trying to get pregnant, having a miscarriage and that the heartbreak of that, the devastation of that, you know? And so when you're in that process of wanting a family and trying to, um, figure out what, you know, what, what is happening in my world, you start, you start exploring all kinds of things. And so, because I was in uh, community and global outreach, we, we worked a lot with um, vulnerable populations of children and, and also worked a lot in, in adoption, not, not necessarily adoption through foster care, but adoption, global international adoption, private adoption, right? This whole world. And so we started as a couple really trying to explore, okay, what is that next step? And what is, what, what are we equipped to do as a couple wanting, you know, to have children in our lives? And so God really took our heart down a journey for adoption and really trying to wrestle that out of having birthing a child from your womb, right. Versus, um, caring for a child through adoption and loving a child through adoption. And so there for us was a real heart journey of getting to a place of surrender that I could, we could do that. And and during all of that, that was one of those very low, you know, seasons after you've been pregnant and you've lost a baby and then you've been pregnant and you've lost another baby. Like your heart is just shattered in pieces at this point, you know? And, um, so we, we kind of surrendered to this idea that we would, we would consider adoption. And then simultaneously at that same, at that same point, the state of Arizona, um, was really entering into crisis and these, um, kiddos, kiddos in Arizona were growing in number in and kids that were needing to enter the state of Arizona foster care system and just in need, and they were going into group homes. And so I, in my head knowledge, not my, I have no motherhood experience at this point. Right. But in my head knowledge, just know that it's not ideal for kids to go into group home settings. It's, it's not ideal for kids to be in a congregate care setting. And so we really felt, um, the call of, of creating a, a large mechanism for recruiting families to step in to kids' lives temporarily um, and kind of step into that foster parent role in and be a safe, secure um, adult that could temporarily love a child and help a child find healing while their parents hopefully were finding healing, you know, and restoration themselves. And so kind of in that, in that space, that's where we developed this nonprofit of Arizona 127 so that we can really, um, know that. And then these aren't, these things aren't all linear. So please don't hear them that way. But my husband and I ended up getting pregnant and, and then pretty immediately after my first live birth child, Um, then I got pregnant again. And so I had these two little tiny babies 
really close to each other. And, um, I remember on my first child, um, where God grew my heart for empathy for, uh, mothers who were losing their children into foster care and, and broke my heart for that kind of that mom who is losing her child into foster care. So, because having a baby and holding a baby that will not go to sleep for you, and you get to that place of sleep deprivation and you get to those scary places, you learn to realize who this, I can see how, if I'm in a domestic violence situation, I can see how, if I'm using drugs, I can see how, if I don't have stable housing, I can see how, um, if I'm, you know, in a, a crazy drug situation playing out kind of scenario where harm comes to children and where, uh, all of these things just are compounding. Yeah. And chaos waiting to happen. Right. And so it really, it really grew my heart of empathy, not judgment. And I, I think those can be, we can go one of two ways there, right. We can go into judgment mode or we can go into empathetic mode. And so that really, that really helped shape us to be the kind of nonprofit we wanted to be, where we really wanted to be a nonprofit that recruited foster families who would love children well, but champion them to get to go home, you know, and champion those birth parents to um, hopefully find healing and wholeness. And um, so as we've kind of grown over the years, that's really been really been powerful. And as, as now motherhood does play in that for me, you know, it, it's all the more reason of like how much I know children need families and families need community. And so that, that is for whether you're a child who's in need of a foster family, or if you're a child returning home, uh, out of a foster family, back to your birth family, or if you're a child going to live with grandma, like Children need to be in family-like settings and not in congregate care or group homes. And that we, we really can step in the gap for vulnerable children and vulnerable families, and hopefully um, be a, an element in their story of healing. You know, my heart is giving you some hallelujah hand emojis. Um, when I was, I was briefly in a group home and I spent Halloween there and not like, I don't know why I remember that it was Halloween other than we weren't allowed to celebrate Halloween in my, my real home. And they had it decorated and it was like, there was some type of group dance or something. And I wasn't allowed to do any of these things at home because my parents were very strict. And then I'm in this group home and allowed to be a little bit more, you know, let off the leash that I was at home. But the hardest part for me in that group home environment was they forced you to take medication and they didn't tell you what you were taking. Yeah. And, um, this was, this was the nineties, which now when I say the word, the nineties, I don't know if you've watched the TikTok guy who always, oh man, it's a good one. He he talks about his fundamentalist Christian church in the nineties and it's very catchy. So every time I say the word in the nineties, that comes to mind. I hope they don't do that now, but I don't know. Um, in any event, tell me about Arizona 127. Tell me how this was born. I know that you alluded to it a little bit. Tell me how it was born as a snapshot and then what it is today 
because I would love for us to be able to kind of champion it here. Yeah. So it, Arizona 127 is oh, a, sorry. no, you're, I think you said it right. Oh, good. Good. It is a, it is a, a nonprofit that works to mobilize communities of faith to um, recruit and then uh, to recruit families, whether they're kinship families or foster families or adoptive families to step in and care for, you know, kids that find themselves in that. For us, it's 1%. For the 1% of kids in Arizona that need a foster or an adoptive home, we are trying to work with churches throughout the state of Arizona to help encourage people, but also help them do it in a healthy way, right? And in a, a thriving way to raise their hand and say, I can be that family for that child or that sibling group, um, whether it is temporary or permanent. And, and I just think churches have a unique one. We, we believe that churches have a unique mandate um, to care for vulnerable kids. And that scripture says that, but also we just know that, that there is a unique opportunity in this idea of a large group of people who have a community together that, that work together, that, you know, kind of have a common theology or a common principle to then also step into really bringing and being able to impact lives and whole systems, hopefully for better and for, you know, good positive change. And so we have been, um, working, I think I already said this for 10 years in the state of Arizona, we work in seven of the largest counties, the seven counties we work in make up 95% of the population, um, in Arizona. So that the majority where people live is where we work. And then we have over a hundred churches that partner with us in kind of this, we would call it a movement of churches working together, um, in this space to kind of help help hopefully um, provide a different experience for children and families who are impacted by the child welfare system of Arizona. What is the number one way that you wish people would know about in order to get involved in helping? Yeah, I, I think the number one way, the thing I think I would love for people to chew on is just to realize there, and we're a big champion of this, there, there is a way for everyone to get involved somehow. And so trying to figure out what is someone's somehow is kind of the big thing. So we have this little tagline that we say, everybody can do something, but everyone is not supposed to do the same thing. And I, I think when we talk about foster care, a lot of times people, um, fearfully stick their ears, their fingers in their ears. Right. And they're like, Oh, I don't, I, I, I couldn't do it. And we hear a lot of common reasons why people can't do it. One, I, I don't want, and you can't see, but in air quotes, I don't want those kids in my house. Right. And so we kind of think that it's, we have a false belief that kids in foster care are bad kids. And that's actually not true. Uh, it's by no fault of their own that a child finds themselves in foster care. Right. And so that's what makes them the most vulnerable is that they have no control over their story at that point. And so how do we, how do we begin to, um, 
think about how do I give my family or give my, my time and space to this child in need. And then, and then the second thing is people say, I could never say goodbye. And so that's why they don't do foster care. And um, so we, we talk through those elements a lot too, with people just to realize like it, we're not saying it's going to be an easy goodbye. We actually hope that it's a really hard goodbye. Cause if it's a hard goodbye, it means that you loved well. And it means that you, you oh, really, my mom heart breaks at the idea. I know, I mean, I know, but if we can love children, well, mm, um, we're, we're actually terrible. setting them up. We're setting them up for the rest of their life, you know, <clears throat> and we just know statistically kids are better when they go back home and we know, you know, and if we can put ourselves in that, even that mom heart there to know, like, gosh, if I was in a bad place and I couldn't care for my kids, I, I would want a safe home, you know, and a loving home to send them to while I got my stuff together. Yeah. And we, we don't view it that way. We view it as bad side, good side, broken. Them, in. Us. Yeah. Them, us broken sides. We don't view it in the like, gosh, what would it be to be this second chance for someone? What would it be to lend a hand? What would it be to help? You know? And so again, I'm only explaining ways to like bring a child into your home, but there's so many other ways to wrap around those families that serve in that way. There's ways to advocate for kids. You can be a mentor. You can be a court appointed specialty advocate, right? You can, you can, there are so many opportunities and needs for people to really step in this space and help the process not be so broken. Um, and so that, that's, there is an opportunity for everyone. I know firsthand that there are a lot of immigrant kids here. What is your experience with serving the immigrant child population? Yeah. So, um, it, when we talk about in Arizona, we would, we would use the word unaccompanied minor, um, and the unaccompanied minor in Arizona comes into a version of the foster care system. And, um, and there's a, there's unfortunately a great need for homes there as well. And so the beautiful thing for us at Arizona 127 is because the system in Arizona is the same, whether you want to care for an un- unaccompanied minor or a child that's been removed and is in actual foster care, the process and the licensing is the same. And so, um, and the need, the need, unfortunately, the great need of families to step into that gap um, for unaccompanied minor or foster care is huge in Arizona. And we, we have a great need in both spaces. Um, and for the families that I know that have, have cared for kids in the unaccompanied minor, um, category, if we, if we, you know, kind of put them in their own category, um, most of them have such a beautiful and a rich experience, even like you were saying, even if they don't speak the language, they have had um, just a, a different, beautiful experience. I think the other thing that's really unique about the unaccompanied minor program, there are there are differences. One, it's for the the difference of the kiddos kind of under under eight, 17 and under, right? And for if you're a family stepping in for a kiddo under 17, a lot of times it's a very short-term placement compared to foster care. Foster care might be several years, right. And an unaccompanied minor kiddo might only be in your, in your home 
three months or six months, and it, it can be a much shorter time. And so some of the families that we know that work in that program, they, they love the kind of short and sweet, you know, care for a kid and then get to see him reunified with family and, and kind of move on. Um, and they celebrate that in a different way. Um, so it's a really unique need. There is a need for in both populations kind of we don't use this word in the unaccompanied minor program, but this kind of aged out uh, area when when children who are in those vulnerable categories of unaccompanied minor or foster care haven't found permanency and they haven't found a family that they then roll into this aged out population. And for both of them, uh, it's a very lonely place. And so there is a need for families and mentors to even step in, in that place for that 18, 19, 20 to 25 year old, and just be a healthy adult relationship. That's helping them navigate, um, young adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. Young adulthood and the, and the world. And we often, I think, I don't know why we think that 18 is this magic number that makes you, um, an adult, because I was not an adult, you know, I, I kind of attended college. Um, I was supposed to be in my class all the time, but I was very rarely there because I was oversleeping, but like I needed a different kind of adult influencing me rather than my college peers. Right. And, um, and so if I just even put myself and I was a pretty good kid, uh, at that age, you know? And so I think about, gosh, if I didn't have healthy adults influencing me, how could I make right choices? Right. And I made a lot of bad choices with really good, healthy adults, uh, influencing me. And so I just think this is another place where my heart just feels like, oh, we can give more of ourselves society. We can give more of ourselves to really lend ourselves into helping, helping and coming alongside people to say, Hey, you're not alone in this, you know? Um, someone, someone cares about your story. And I think that's the hard thing that that's the message that the kiddos that I work with, um, in foster care and unaccompanied my in vulnerable populations, the lie that gets said to people, um, is that they're not worthy of love and belonging. Right. And, and I just want us to say, Oh, that's, that's, that's a lie. That is from the pit of hell. Like that is not truth. And how do we humans kind of step in and say, no, you are worthy of love and belonging. And I'm going to be someone who's going to be in your life to say that, you know? And I feel like if we can personally, we, we each know we personally need that in our own lives. Right. And so why do we think that vulnerable populations don't need actually more people saying that into their life. Right. And more people coming alongside and saying, this is a tricky hand you've been dealt and we're going to step in and say, no, you are valued. You are loved. You are seen, you are important. And I'll give my time. I'll give my resource. I'll give my talent to help you or come alongside you. I think it's amazing that you were, you went through a, a, devastating journey to mother. And then now 10 years later, find yourself mothering so many other people. And that's pretty remarkable. Mm. Yeah. 
that's that's an interesting observation (laughs) that you know yeah I I had um infertility issues and then had four kids in four years and I joke that you have to be really careful what you pray for because we really over prayed because it was fast and furious but um in all seriousness though there is a there is so much beauty even in that struggle um that's led you to where you are today and I love that there's an easy buy-in option for each of these opportunities where it's like, I can get involved as much or as little. I've done big brothers, big, big sisters, and it sounds like there's a, perhaps not the same type of program, but there's a mentoring element and everyone can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone can do that. So I love it. You can check out, um, AZ 127. Um, Arizona 127 on Instagram. I was looking at your Instagram. It's beautiful. And it looks like people can get involved and find awesome ways to get connected there. Katie, is there anything else you'd like to share? Because I have one last question for you. No, go for it. Give us your one last question. One last question. What is a book that you feel like, and we can't go with the Bible because I feel like everybody would say the Bible. If I'm talking to a pastor, I'm going to get in front of you on this. But what's a book that you think that if you could gift it to someone, perhaps a life changing or just a message changing or window into, into who you are, what would be a book that you would recommend? Okay. Let me clarify the question. Sorry. So there are no wrong answers. Yeah, I know, but I love books. So I, it's a matter of what is the right book to say for this topic. You want me to recommend um, a book that what comes would, to mind. That comes to mind. I, I think a book this, and we haven't even talked about this. I think a book that I recommend a lot to people. It's kind of a. It's not an easy read book, but I. I love the book called The Body Keeps the Score. And all about trauma. Yeah. And it's all about trauma. And I don't think you can work in vulnerable communities and not understand the power of trauma, right? And the impact of trauma on lifelong, lifelong. And so I feel like so many of us don't even realize our own, our own trauma in our own story. And I, even though that's not an easy read book, I think he covers it um, so well and really just kind of opens your eyes up to how the body, the body does keep the score, you know, in our brain and in our body and in our um, soul and in our, in our spiritual being of, of just kind of the impact of things that have happened to us, whether in our control or out of our control. I love it. I'm familiar with the book. I haven't read it, but I recently read, um, patriarchy stress disorder, and it Mm -hmm. has similar conversations, not necessarily about how the body, how it's manifesting, but the idea that we even inherit trauma and it's like, starts to really blow your mind and it gives you so much patience and love for yourself and for your parents and your grandparents, because we don't necessarily know why we respond to certain things the way we respond to them. So I love it. Katie, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you're here and have shared all this with us and it's been rich and wonderful. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Katie O'Dell. This has been such a pleasure to visit with her and get to know her more. I went on to read The Body Keeps the Score because I was familiar with the book, had read pieces of it, but went on to read it. And I want to not only caution you, but, you know, really advise you that this is an important, this is trauma work is so important in the, the way that it impacts our organs and the way we breathe and really every piece of our existence on the inside. It's intense for people like me and probably on some level like you who've had trauma in our lives and are still processing it. It's hard. It's a hard book to read, but the science is so important. And I have personally started doing what's called tapping, T-A-P-P-I-N-G, and I'm not talking about the dance, but tapping has been a great way for me to release some of this bot, some of this trauma that's in my body and get this negative energy out. It's been truly life-changing. And if you can give it a Google, I, I would love to have my tapping coach come on. Um, and maybe if, uh, if you guys think that that would be something you'd like to hear so that he can explain the science behind tapping and everything else. But I know Katie talks about the body keeps the score. It's a really great book. It's super intense because the things that the science, the, the scientist and the author really goes through with other people is, is so hard what humans embrace and they endure, but it's so valuable to see how our, how trauma lives in our life and that there are tools available to us to release that and move on to live a, a fuller, freer life. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll see you again on another episode of The Hillary Show.